The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Julia Borston, and you're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Tuesday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with John Fort and Deirdre Bosa. Today, a head fake or a sign of what's to come? As markets come off their worst day since June, we'll discuss what comes next with Satori Fund's Dan Niles, and we'll break down some of this morning's big moves. Feeling the sting of crypto winter? Well, so is Coinbase. A lot more on how Brian Armstrong's handling that volatility in a CNBC exclusive that you do not want to miss this hour. And finally, don't think we forgot about Intel. We got an inside look at the company's new $30 billion deal with Brookfield, what it signals for Intel, the chip industry, and for CapEx within technology, John. Yeah, Carl, we're going to kick off today's feed with dueling stories in software. Zoom is plummeting this morning after cutting its outlook for the next quarter and the year. Shares are now on pace for their worst month since April. See down there more than 13% as their CFO warns new paying subscribers proving harder than expected to come by. Zoom phone doing fine, though. But heading in the opposite direction is Palo Alto Networks, biggest gainer on the Nasdaq this morning, up more than 10%. Upbeat forecast helping boost things there. The company also announcing a new three-for-one stock split set to take effect on September 14th. D, um, this is sort of a sign of the times. Security so important. The move to the yeah. cloud, a wind at Palo Alto's back here. And uh, bookings, you know, bookings really strong, showing that this isn't just a one-quarter thing, but mm-hmm. the intention to spend is there in place for months to come. And gap profitability for the first time in four years. That was something that Nikesh Arora highlighted on the call last night. When it comes to Zoom, though, and Zoom and this brutal sell-off that we are seeing in the markets today, um, it really sort of continues what we have seen this year, Carl, this um, bifurcation between the consumer and the enterprise. Before the pandemic, Zoom was largely an enterprise company that flipped on its head. And consumer went from being about a third the size of enterprise to nearly 40 percent larger than enterprise in just two quarters. And that's where it's really feeling the pain. Not that there isn't some slowdown in the enterprise as well in terms of a deceleration in growth. Um, but, it, you know, consumers, they don't tend to sign these multi-year contracts. And that's what's sinking the stock now, the prospect that it's not going to grow like it has. Of course, it's not. Um, but consumers can cancel them a lot more easily. Yeah, it's true. Although Bernstein defending it today, uh, they write, should we just stick a fork in the business and call it a day? Not so fast. We see glimmers of sun through the clouds as they build a product, uh, D, that our recent channel checks suggest remain a preferred solution and they stick with market perform. That's their core product. And, and John mentioned phone, right? Zoom phone is doing OK. But the promise doing was that great. it was going to be this unified communications platform Um, I don't know, John, do you buy it? I mean, now they're trying to build their call center business organically. 5.9 would have been a big win. It would have been. And Zoom is in a tough position, sure. But right now, it's trading right around where it was after it first went public. So just think Mm -hmm. about has has the future of work and the perspective on it and uh, the sense of the role that video conferencing plays, has that changed uh, dramatically 
since then. Yeah, I mean, it really has. Uh, and, you know, how many people would have just fallen all over themselves to get Zoom at sub 100 bucks a share? Here it is. <laughs> the product has value. Um, yeah. You know, they've grown it tremendously over time. Sure, there's been this huge narrative shift where there are a lot of people saying, oh, people are never going back to the office. Work has changed forever. Yeah, work has changed a bit, but people are going back to the office. That doesn't change the fact that this is a high-quality product in the space. And, you know, there's, there's the chance now that, uh, you know, because the sentiment has swung the other way, you know, at first, you know, they're never going to be anything, and now they're never going to be well, anything again, right? Uh, when when really the truth is somewhere in the middle. You can have a high quality product. The pendulum product. never stops in the middle. <laughs> you can have a high quality product, but we didn't mention the elephant in the room. That is Microsoft. I like what Jim said earlier, Carl. Um, there's this company called Microsoft. And when you open your PC, Teams shows up. Uh, so that's making the proposition for companies like Zoom, Zoom in particular, a little tougher. We're going to stick with software, though. Our next guest is shorting a range of sector names, bracing for a post-pandemic slowdown and predicting that we will see a more traditional recession next year. Joining us now, Satori Fund founder, Dan Niles. Dan, good morning. Um, we love when you can join us. You've called the recent rally a bear market rally. You still think that we're heading lower in the coming year. Um, we talked about Zoom, but I want to ask you specifically about Palo Alto and Cisco, two companies um, off quarter that have put out pretty decent results and outlooks. Does that make you pause at all and think that this rally could be more than a bear market one? No, not at all, because the other side of it is look at the PMI numbers that came out this morning. And I think that ties to what you're going to see looking forward, which is up until now, as, as you talked about, the consumer has seen the slowdown. Well, you know, two thirds of the U.S. economy is related to services, uh, the consumer. And when that starts to slow down, then you start to see it affect enterprise demand uh, with a lag. And so that's the next phase of this slowdown, where if you remember earlier this year, the big tech companies couldn't hire fast enough. Now they're all in hiring freezes, or in Amazon's case, laying off people because they overhire. And then what you will see, the next phase of this is as consumption starts to slow down, you have less people working at these companies, then enterprise demand is sort of the next phase of this. So for us, we're actually, you know, we own some Amazon, we own some Walmart now, defensive longs, as I like to call it, names that should pick up market share during a recession. And the names that we're really actually shorting is the ones related to the enterprise, because I think mm. that's the next phase of this. Obviously, security, there's like pockets of enterprise that should do better. Security should be one of them. Um, but that's how we're thinking about this on a very big picture basis. But Dan, weren't we supposed to see at least some slowdown in enterprise over the last quarter? We did see slowing growth rates at the hyperscalers, the cloud companies. Um, but I, I was kind of struck by Chuck Robbins' comments last week that Europe was actually surprisingly strong for him. Um, what do you make of that? Where, what is the catalyst for the next shoe to drop in enterprise? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, if you think about this, as I said er earlier, you have seen enterprise slowdown, and it's not across the board, right? Because But the right market's now, taken it in stride. Yeah, but remember, how much is Cisco down from its highs? I mean, Cisco, part of this that wasn't talked about in your discussion of Zoom is I didn't hear any of you bring up, well, how much are you paying for it? What's the PE multiple? And that's yes. the critical piece that's missing from a lot of these discussions is, yes, Zoom is down from 590 to $85, and it's showing that the stock can still go down, even when it's down already 80 you know, percent or so from its highs. 
And that last piece is the one that people aren't focused on, which is if you look at the overall market, you're still paying a 20 times trailing PE for the S&P 500. When inflation is over 3%, the trailing PE is 15 times. And you've still got estimates going down in aggregate. We can talk about the one-offs like Cisco or Palo Alto Networks, but on reporting Q2 results, S&P earnings went down for 2023 for the first time in two years after going up for two years straight off of quarterly results. So you're starting to see the overall numbers go down. And don't forget, every big cap tech company, whether it was Amazon or Apple even, that beat both revenues and EPS, the EPS for the September quarter went down in all of those cases, Microsoft, Facebook, Google, all. So that's the big picture. So you don't want to get caught up in the day-to-day -day moves of, oh, Palo Alto is up today and Cisco's up today. And well, but Zoom is down. You got to step back and look at this because this is going to be a long punishing journey. As the Fed will probably remind us at Jackson Hole on Friday, they've still got to raise rates a lot more from the 2.5% that we're at now to get it to the 3.8, which is where they have forecasts for their medium projections right. by the end of 2023. How long does this take to play out, you think, uh, the consumer slowdown, the sort of slow evaporation of demand? Are the holiday numbers going to be what, what brings that home? Um, is January the reality check, the sobering up uh, post-New Year's? Um, and then eventually it, it's going to take some time for that to trickle through to enterprise if that does indeed happen, right? That, John, I think hit the nail on the head, and that's what we're looking at. Like, for example, we own Apple right now because they've got a product launch on September 7th. The stock runs up 68% of the time in the two weeks prior. It's going to move up into it. But don't forget, Apple was a big pandemic yeah. beneficiary, just like Zoom was. Their revenue growth has slowed down. But what are we all spending our money on? We're not spending them on Peloton bikes, Netflix subscriptions, Zoom, etc. We're going out. We're going on vacation. We're getting on flights, et cetera. So that spending is shifting quite a bit. And I think what you're going to see is, to your point, John, when you get to the holidays, there's going to be a lot more money spent on things like vacations this holiday season versus last holiday season when you may have been buying a lot of goods. It's going to be spent on services. And that's when I think things come home to roost. Hey, finally, Dan, uh, just talking some levels uh, back in mid-June, I think we were at 36.75. You uh, moved from a neutral to net long. Do you think we get back there? Yes, absolutely. And it wouldn't surprise me to see it go lower because, as we talked about earlier, right, valuations is that piece that no one talks about. They talk about, well, Zoom's gone from this to that. But what are you paying for it? And if earnings estimates are going down during normal recessions, S&P earnings get revised lower by 20%. You just started that process when you reported Q2. So if you say, well, 20% reduction to estimates gets you to a $200 2023 target of EPS on the S&P, you put a 15 multiple on it, which is makes sense when you know inflation is above 3%, obviously it's at eight and a half right now. You have a pretty large downside potential if you combine that with the Fed continuing to push to get unemployment up because that's the only way to take care of inflation on the services side, right, with wages and things like that. Um, that's what it's going to take. So to John's point earlier, it's going to take some time to get there. 
This is not a, you know, three-month, six-month process. This is a one-year, two-year process. Right. Uh, well, Dan, it's always great to get your insights. A valuation piece, uh, very important indeed. And Zoom currently trades at more than 22 times forward earnings. Uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Dan Niles, Satori Fund. Thank you. Coinbase CEO Brian Armstrong is next. Don't go away. Tech Check, just getting started. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. This extended crypto winter taking its toll on Bitcoin, Ether, and exchange stocks like Coinbase, down more than 70% since the beginning of the year. Our Kate Rooney sat down with Coinbase's Brian Armstrong last night and joins us this morning with that rare exclusive interview. Hi, Kate. Hey, Carl. That's right. Coinbase CEO Brian Armstrong and I spoke for just under an hour last night here in Los Angeles talking regulation, the stock price, going public, Web3, and a lot more. But we started the conversation on this macro environment and how Coinbase is thinking in the short term amid this extended crypto winter. Take a listen. We never try to predict the future. I think there's this famous saying, you know, economists have successfully predicted nine of the last two recessions. So um, obviously we're in a bit of a down cycle here, but it's not unusual for us. We've been through four cycles like this as a company. We're only 10 years old. This one just happens to coincide with the broader macro environment coming down. So um, we all hope it'll be, you know, 12, 18 months and nice recovery, but you obviously have to plan for it being longer than that. And so that's how we think about it. And we don't try to get too cute about predicting the future. Does it feel different, this downturn, because of some of the macro factors? You've got inflation, potential recession risk, rising rates. Crypto has been through these downturns, but nothing like the uh, backdrop we've seen in terms of the economy right now. Is it feeling a little different? Actually, no, it feels the same, I think, from our point of view. Um, you know, when crypto goes down, everyone gets very pessimistic and there's fear and, you know, they get uh, they just get distracted. They move on to other things. And when crypto is you know, running up and it's they think it's everything and there's a rational exuberance. And so neither one is true. We always say that we have this saying internally. I, I like to repeat a lot, which is, you know, it's never as good as it seems. It's never as bad as it seems. And I think one of the reasons Coinbase has been so successful over the last 10 years is we just we try not to get focused on short term ups and downs and we just zoom out and we think about, OK, well, five, 10 years from now, are more people going to be using crypto? Probably. You know, is the Internet going to be more widely distributed? Probably. Is there going to be more e-commerce and more digital payments? And so these are all tailwinds that are long term trends. And so if we just don't get distracted and we keep building great products, we're going to do fine over the next five or 10 years. And your business is so tied to trading volume. Is that a hard thing to not be distracted by the prices when it is so dependent on how much people are buying and selling? Yeah. So for better or worse, um, the majority of our revenue historically and, and still today has been from trading fees. And so it's great in up markets. We tend to make lots of revenue profit. We're, that's great. Last year, we, we booked a huge profit. 
In down markets, it can change very dramatically. We're not, by the way, the crypto is not entirely unique in that regard. There's other uh, traditional, you know, brokerages and financial services and energy traders and, you know, any New York Stock Exchange, everybody can't predict what's going to happen with the S&P 500 next quarter. So there are other businesses that have that kind of lack of predictability. But one thing we're doing is we're shifting more of our revenue over time away from trading fees to what we call subscription and services. And so that's now grown to be 18% uh, of our revenue in our last earnings. We shared that. And I think that'll you know, continue to grow over time, over many years. And that's good. It makes our revenue more predictable for the long term. Has that uncertainty been a hard story to tell Wall Street? You're not alone. Obviously, these other brokerage terms are going through the same thing. But the idea that you're so tied to whatever happens in crypto. Um, well, we are 100% focused on crypto. I think that's, that's a pretty easy story to tell. And then the revenue volatility, again, it's not entirely unique. They've seen this before with Charles Schwab and the New York Stock Exchange, right? And so um, that part is not entirely different. I think the part that's, that's a little bit unique that we're out there telling our story around with crypto is, hey, you know, we're really passionate about economic freedom. And we think crypto is this amazing way to create more of that in the world, to go create good financial infrastructure in these countries all over the world and make even you know financial markets here right in the US or in developed countries that much more efficient and by the way it's not just about financial services there's this whole other thing web3 and people are building all kinds of new apps with around identity and social and games and you know new ways to conduct scientific research and it's getting to be much bigger it truly is the next generation of the internet that that's kind of a much bigger picture story to tell which is frankly harder to wrap one's head around and i'm still wrapping my own head around it so you know, I think that's fine. Every company has to start with one big thing that grows the revenue. And then, you know, you have a next act and a next act where that's that's the story we're out there telling. So, Brian, it's been a pretty brutal year for Coinbase's stock, down about 80 percent from the high, 70 percent or so from this year. What should investors know and what should give them confidence that you're going to turn the stock and the company around? Yeah. So I think it's always important to separate what's in our control, what's not in our control in this kind of market. And of course, the broader macro environment, we don't control that. We don't even control the crypto markets. And so if you look at that, I think we're, we're down roughly in line with our peers, right? So um, I try to put that part aside, focus on what we actually do control. And the things we can control are what products we focus on building, um, how are we managing our costs in this environment, making sure that we're well capitalized through any down period. Um, you know, we were really uh, fortunate last year to go out and raise $3 billion of debt at a very attractive rate. So it's making sure that we can continue to invest not only in our core products, which are driving the profitability today, uh, but using the, the profitability of those core products to invest in a little bit of the future, too, so that we come out of this cycle even stronger. And you guys have about $6 billion on the balance sheet. Is that right? A little more. Yeah, it's a little over $6 billion. What's the plan for M&A? You guys did some strategic acquisitions in the last downturn. Where are you seeing opportunity and where might you look to buy other companies right now during the downturn? Yeah, so obviously I can't speak about any deals that might, may or may not be <laughs> <laughs> ongoing, but um, suffice to say we're looking closely at every deal that's happening right now. And I think that um, we haven't necessarily seen prices come down dramatically from where they were, but we're early in this cycle. And so and it's not all about price. I think we're, we're taking a long-term view of this as well. So if there's a partner or a company that we just think, you know, if we put one and one plus one together, we get three or five or something, you know, that's a deal that we would do in an up market and a down market. Um, so I think we're, we're excited about some of these M&A opportunities. And so executives put a sort of cap on losses at about $500 million. What kind of guardrails are you putting up to make sure that those losses don't go even deeper if this crypto winter lasts longer than you might expect? Yeah, so at the beginning of this year and really Q4 last year, we communicated that uh, we were targeting a neg negative $500 million EBITDA for this year. 
Um, you know, we're, we're roughly on track to do that despite these kind of very uh, extreme conditions. So I feel good about that. We did have to uh, react quite quickly. And, you know, we did an layoff of 18% of employees earlier this year. Um, so I think some of the actions like that, you, you can never predict the future with, with business, but you can adapt quickly and try to make sure you're not burying your head in the sand or refusing to look at the truth. And so, um, you know, I think through that and a lot of great conversations with our board and external folks, um, we've been able to navigate that environment quick, well so far. And a lot of the costs have been around stock-based compensation. How are you managing and sort of balancing incentivizing current employees and keeping people around with also not diluting shareholders? Right. So this is obviously I'm a large shareholder myself yeah. and I, I, I can I'm sensitive to any kind of dilution that might be out there. Um, look, I think we're balancing this idea of you need great employees to build the best products in the world. And we want to make sure that we retain them um, in this environment. If things are coming down, you know, every company, I think it's not this is not just Coinbase, is looking very closely at um, how well they're paying. Is that still market or is the market changing? Right. Um, and you have to kind of uh, take a really close look, I think, as well at the different levels, right, of people coming into the organization. Um, anything is on the table in the future. I, you know, I think we're not alone in that regard. Could there potentially be more layoffs? You know, you never want to say never. I, I will say that the, the one layoff that we put out there, it was designed to be a one-time event. Um, and but you I can't tell you what the world is going to be like a year from now. And so anything could happen. Jim Chanos has been one of the notable short sellers of Coinbase. His thesis really being that Coinbase over earns, as he put it. What is your response to Jim Chanos and others out there that might say that fees are going to erode and that costs will have to come down or fees will have to come down at some point? Yeah. Well, OK, so I think there's the short and the medium term and then there's the long term, right? Um, short term, we have not seen any fee compression to date, so that's that's good. Um, I, we generally, we see that, especially our retail customers, they're not super price focused. They they want to use the app that is, it's trusted, it's easy to use. They're not going to lose their money. It has the products, the, the assets, and the payment methods, and you know the additional functionality around staking and you know NFTs. And there's so many new things happening in crypto, especially on the retail side, that. It just it hasn't become commoditized yet, right? Now, you know, if you look at other um, products that we have, our exchange and things like that, these are professional investors that are, you know, high frequency. They're trading bips and matter of every kind of trade of these market makers and things like that. So, I think that that could change a little bit over time. But again, it hasn't. We haven't seen anything dramatic. Now, okay. So think. About, let's think about medium term and longer term. Um, I do think there's going to be margin compression eventually. It has to happen at some point because everything that we're building, you know, others eventually are going to build it and it'll become a little bit more commoditized. Um, so, you know, what do we do with that environment? This is why we're investing today in so much in subscription and services revenue. And we're realizing that trading fees is not going to be that thing that, that you know, it's going to be, the, it's still going to be a major part of our business in 10 years from now, even 20 years from now. But I'd like to get to a place where more than 50% of our revenue is subscription and services. We've been focused on that for the last three years. I mean, it takes time to plant these seeds, see the, the green shoots, really nurture it and, and get it to a good place. So we're seeing good, um, good subscription and services revenue now. It's now 18%. I think two years ago, it was 4% of our revenue. So the trend is pretty clear. Do you feel like it's been a disadvantage to be publicly listed at this point? A lot of your big competitors are privately held in different countries. Do you feel like you've had to move more slowly because you're listed on the NASDAQ? 
Well, okay, so some days it, it certainly recently has felt a little bad to be a public company, but I think, honestly, the same thing is happening in private companies. They're just not getting the mark to market like every day. Um, but if they were public, it'd probably be the same thing. I'm glad we went public. I think that this is the right long-term bet because again, we want to be the most trusted company out there in crypto. We want to be the easiest to use. And so by kind of going first, we might, you know, sometimes pioneers get a few arrows or whatever that saying is, but I think that's fine. And, and it might take two, three years. People are going to start to see our track record that we're managing the business rigorously with good capital allocation, a focus on long-term profits. And I think that's just going to help us uh, be the most trusted, go win some of these deals like with BlackRock and with Meta. Um, and so I'm glad that we're doing the right thing for the long term, even if this short term market has been a little painful. You were the first public crypto company. Do you feel like that is resulting in the SEC paying more attention and potentially making an example out of Coinbase? No, I, I think that we we get our fair share of attention. You know, we're the largest in the U.S. and we, we do get a, a lot of attention from the from the SEC, but they, they're giving attention to everybody. So I, I don't think that that's unfair. I guess just zooming out, um, you know, we've been actively engaging with regulators. And I actually think it's a good thing. Sometimes it's reported as it's a bad thing, but I actually don't. Um, you know, we send petitions and information to regulators. They send us inquiries. We meet with various people every week at the company. And our overall goal is really to help drive regulatory clarity on a global scale. I, I tweeted out something about this recently, showing a breakdown of every G20 country. Our policy team is meeting with most of those countries. Um, and uh, sort of where we're seeing, you know, no regulation, pending regulation, and clear regulation for crypto. And it's just compared to two years ago, it's like night and day. There's basically pending legislation or, or active clear legislation for crypto in almost every G20 across major categories now. So I think this is really good, and it's not widely known, is that, um, like, even here in the U.S., I think we'll see probably a comprehensive crypto bill, hopefully passed next year. And what that'll mean is just with that clarity emerging, there'll be a lot more institutional money flowing into crypto. Again, Brian Armstrong and I spoke for more than a half an hour last night. There's a lot more in there. You can watch that full exclusive interview online later today on Crypto World, only on CNBC.com. Back to you guys. Uh, Kate, a lot of great stuff in there. It seems to me that he's sort of not flying the pirate flag quite as vigorously as he used to, comparing uh, Coinbase to Charles Schwab and the NYSE, having some very, you know, sort of neutral, positive things to say about regulators, uh, not talking tough so much. Um, he also took some uh, controversial stances on politics at work, for example, over the past couple of years. Did, did he talk about that? It was interesting. Well, he definitely didn't take any shots at the SEC or Gary Gensler, and he has made some comments on Twitter, but did seem to be pretty balanced on the regulatory side. He spent a lot of time in D.C. He talked about that. And then on the cultural side, he really was a standout in Silicon Valley doing the opposite of what a lot of tech companies were doing about a year ago and saying, essentially, they called it a mission first company. And he, a lot of people interpreted that as leaving politics at the door it got a lot of pushback, and Brian Armstrong in particular was really under the microscope for that. He was saying about a year later, first of all, a lot of companies have gone in a similar direction. We've had uh, Shopify do something pretty similar, and he was saying that it's helped them focus. It's also helped probably weed out certain employees that were not on the same page and that didn't want to be at a company like Coinbase that was taking that strategy. He also said something interesting about other CEOs out there who had reached out to him saying essentially, hey, we would have loved to do the same thing, but we couldn't take the public pressure. And he said he was hearing from not only tech CEOs, 
but a lot of other Fortune 500 companies who kind of admired the move but couldn't do the same thing. So it was interesting to hear some of the back and forth on that. And in hindsight, about a year later, that he was saying it turns out it was a good move despite some of the public pressure. Yeah, Kate, I like the way that uh, John put that, not flying the pirate flag as, as high, perhaps. Uh, interesting, too, that he compared himself to Schwab, which actually gets a higher valuation in terms of a price to sales multiple. So maybe, you know, going out and telling his story a little better. Uh, great interview. Kate Rooney, thank you for bringing that to us. Thanks, guys. And stay tuned. Next hour, Jim Chanos will respond to that Brian Armstrong interview exclusively on the Halftime Report with Scott Wapner coming up in just about half an hour. You don't want to miss that. Time now for a news update. Let's get to Christina Partsinavolis. Christina. Thank you. Here's what's happening at this hour. Sales of newly built homes fell 12.6% in July from June levels. That's the slowest pace since early 2016. The slowdown reflects the impact of higher mortgage rates. The drop was more than economists had expected, with new home sales nearly 30% below where they were a year ago. Pfizer and partner BioNTech say their COVID-19 vaccine was 73.2% effective in a study of children under the age of five. That's below earlier analysis, which had suggested an efficacy rate of just above 80%. But experts have said the number could fall due to a low number of symptomatic cases in earlier studies. The vaccine had been authorized for use in young children back in June. Consumers have been cutting back on dining out, but not on their morning coffee. Financial services company Rabobank says spending at restaurants fell 3.1% in June from a year earlier, but rose 1.9% at coffee shops and bakery cafes. Economists say consumers are embracing small indulgences, even as they become more careful with their budgets. John, back over to you. All right, Christina, thank you. Intel, meanwhile, striking a new $30 billion partnership with Brookfield Asset Management to finance its FAB expansion plan. We're going to break down the news and more with Intel's chief financial officer, David Zinzer, uh, next. Don't go away. Tech Check is back after this. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at... (laughs) 3 a.m. The office was shocked. (laughs) That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. (laughs) I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Welcome back. Big news out of Intel this morning. The company making waves in the semiconductor space with a first-of-its-kind funding agreement partnering with Brookfield Asset Management to finance up to $30 billion in factory expansions. Here to discuss, Intel's new chief financial officer, David Zinsner. Uh, David, welcome. So um, first, help us understand what is different about this and how it changes the model for Intel. Um, Brookfield is going to put in 49% uh, of the capital that it takes to build this out and then get 49% of revenue. Uh, Do they have any downside protections in case, you know, the capacity isn't fully used? How how is this going to work? Okay, good question. And thank you. Thank you for having me, John. So, uh, so we have this notion of smart capital, which is to accelerate our capital investments mainly to improve our process technology roadmap and and uh, and the capacity associated with that, but also to create a more diversified and resilient supply chain globally for the semiconductor industry. Uh, and so we looked at various options for um, 
for help, helping to fund this. And smart, the smart capital is the aggregate view of how we're approaching this. One of which is this co-investment program with Brookfield. Uh, Brookfield, as you said, will put in 49% of the $30 billion we'll invest in Arizona. We'll put into the other 51%. We'll have complete control operationally over the fab. Uh, they're more or less a financial partner in the, in the investment. Um, they do get a return. Um, obviously, um, that return is higher than our debt, but lower than our equity. Uh, and for the risk they're taking is, is an appropriate return uh, from that vantage point. And they, you know, in essence, uh, share in the cash flows of the, of, of the factories. That said, I mean, our, our goal, obviously, and you have to in the semiconductor industry, uh, maximize the output of, of the uh, factory. So, um, you know, that's our expectation is how we'll approach that. And, and obviously, they'll, they'll, uh, you know, they'll get a return on that. David, how does, this, how does this affect the foundry strategy and the amount of risk that Intel puts on in pursuing it? Um, you know, 49%, maybe you guys have the final say over what gets done, but it sounds yeah. like they've got a seat at the table. So as far as how that foundry strategy, strategy uh, gets pursued, uh, how you hit benchmarks, and the degree of risk you take on as you do that, how much are, are these partners, uh, and, and this being the first, going to have to say about that? Yeah, so we have complete control over how the FAB um, rolls out. You know, there's obviously some, some requirements in terms of how much cash flow has to be generated from that factory, and we'll obviously maximize the cash flow of that factory uh, so, that, um, so that it gets the appropriate level of return. Um, they don't have a ton of say over, you know, how much we do there, uh, but they do have an expectation around the returns they're going to get from that. And, uh, and so we've, you know, we've built into the agreement uh, the ability to um, to manage that. Hey, David, I wonder, you know, how broad this could get. There's so much riding on the, the reshoring of uh, capacity, manufacturing, production, jobs. Could this go beyond Intel facilities? Could it go beyond chips even, uh, at least in the eyes of Brookfield? It's a good question. I'm sure Brookfield, you know, I can't speak for them, but I'm sure they're looking at other opportunities. Uh, I think they view this as a beachhead. Uh, into the semiconductor industry, and there'll be lots of opportunities, as you mentioned, to invest in semiconductors in the in the U.S. and and in in Europe as well. Um, for us as well, I would imagine that we are going to do this again. Uh, you know, our first facility, obviously, to invest in is is the one in Arizona. But as as you know, we're investing in a fab in Ohio. We're investing in a fab in Germany, and so you know, we'll look to potentially use these vehicles in the future uh, to help, uh, you know, kind of manage the cash flow. The great thing about this really is that, um, you know, so much of the cash inflow happens so much before the outflow, you know, or, or, you know, in terms of, you know, the proceeds from the customers. And so this enables us to kind of reshift the cash flows such that we have a better matching between our outflows uh, to fund the, the fab expansion and the inflows that come from 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 our customers. Uh, David, I know that you can't talk um, exactly about the cost of financing, but you did say it was somewhere between debt and equity. And I wonder, um, did you guys consider eliminating the dividend for even temporarily? Was that on the table when you thought about financing this deal and how you guys are going to ramp up manufacturing? So it was never on the table. We we are committed to the dividend. We're committed to growing the dividend over the long term. We have uh, uh, good expectations or strong expectations that will generate very strong free cash flow. 
uh, once we get out, out from, from this investment cycle that we're in right now. Um, you know, we really, and, and by the way, we have a strong balance sheet and, and we have other pools of capital, um, but we wanted to diversify even the pools of capital that we were tapping into uh, to make the investments necessary to drive this transformation. And, you know, this, this uh, you know, we, we kind of worked with Brookfield over the course of the last seven or eight months to kind of flesh out what is a fairly common structure outside of semiconductors, but is absolutely new and innovative uh, within uh, the semiconductor industry. And then finally, David, give me, if you will, an update on inflation's impact on these capital expansion plans. It's been more than a year since Pat Gelsinger first started talking about this. Inflation has been running rampant. Uh, sure, labor costs, but then all sorts of uh, equipment costs that go into, you know, construction costs that go into that. How much has that uh, grown the cost that you expect these things, uh, these facilities to have over time? And how does that influence uh, your, your smart capital strategy? Yeah, so, uh, you know, we originally, as we were thinking about Arizona, expected the investment to be something in the neighborhood of $20 billion. Um, and some of that was just, you know, planning at the low end. And, and now that we have that plan fully fleshed out, the number, you know, is higher. But it also includes inflation. I mean, we certainly have seen the cost of these uh, factories uh, rising in terms of the level of investment. I mean, $30 billion is, is just a very significant amount of money even for Intel to invest. And it's why smart capital is so important. We need government incentives. We need uh, prepays from customers. And we need, uh, you know, instruments like this uh, to help manage uh, some of that, uh, some of that significant amount of capital we have to deploy to make this transformation possible and, and bring semiconductor manufacturing to the U.S. All right. Uh, David, thank you. David Zinsner, thank you very the much. CFO of Intel. Pretty fascinating. Uh, meantime, a former Twitter exec is blowing the whistle on the company. What that means for Musk's $44 billion deal after the break as Twitter's down 5% now. Back in a moment. Twitter is being accused of deceiving regulators and its own board of directors by new whistleblower complaint made public this morning. Julia Borston joins us with that story. Julia. Deirdre, a whistleblower is accusing Twitter of, among other things, violating its settlement with the Federal Trade Commission by falsely saying it had appropriate security for user data. Now, this complaint, which comes from a hacker who was Twitter's head of security, Peter Zatko, reported this morning by The Washington Post and CNN. Zatko alleges that he warned Twitter that half of the company's servers were running out of date and vulnerable to software and that executives withheld information about the lack of protection for user data. He also alleged that the company prioritized user growth over reducing spam. That's a point that Elon Musk's camp is seizing upon to support its case that Twitter underreported fake or spam accounts. Musk's attorney Alex Spiro saying, quote, we have already issued a subpoena for Mr. Zatko and we found his exit and that of other key employees curious in light of what we have been finding. But Twitter responding and discrediting these allegations, saying, quote, Mr. Zatko was fired from his senior executive role at Twitter in January 2022 for ineffective leadership and poor performance. What we've seen so far is a false narrative about Twitter and our privacy and data security practice, practices that is riddled with inconsistencies and inaccuracies. 
Yusuf, truest analyst Yusuf Squally telling us, quote, if we thought initially that Mr. Musk had very little chance of winning in court, these revelations improve his odds somewhat. But he also says that, quote, our view of the situation remains unchanged and our rating on Twitter remains at hold. This all comes on the heels of Elon Musk's legal team subpoenaing Twitter co-founder Jack Dorsey. Of course, he's also a former CEO. He did support Musk's bid, and now Musk and his legal team is hoping he'll provide some details about those spam accounts that are very much in focus. Guys? Julia uh, Zacco, better known as Mudge within the hacker community, somewhat of a celebrity. I mean, he's one of the first hackers I remember covering uh, like 25 years ago. This is a big deal, Mudge plus Musk, because, I mean, Twitter's saying that they fired him for poor for performance. Given how Twitter's done over the past five years, 10 years even, there are a lot of people who they could have fired for poor performance. They, they kind of have to substantiate that at this point, because this guy, he knows what he's talking about. I mean, yes. I mean, this is really interesting here, John. You make such a good point that Mudge, as he's called, is kind of an, an icon in the hacker community. He was hired, as hackers sometimes are, to oversee security. But also, there are all sorts of questions about if you're overseeing security, what your additional responsibilities are there in terms of managing people, et cetera. So I'm sure we'll get more information uh, from Twitter. But, you know, the question that's being raised here, you know, Twitter's kind of indicating that it's a sour grapes situation uh, where Mudge didn't like the way he was pushed out of the company. Um, but so many he says, she says here. And of course, this all is in the lead up to the trial, which is set for October. Uh, that's where the rubber will definitely meet the road, uh, Julia. Fascinating development today. Uh, that's our Julia Borston. Speaking of uh, social media, imitation may be the sincerest form of flattery, but not when it comes to Instagram. The company prototyping a new candid challenges feature that The Verge is calling a murder clone of Gen Z social media app Be Real, where users are prompted to share a candid photo at a random time each day. For now, it's just an internal prototype, but given Instagram's history of copying features first seen on Snap and TikTok, remains to be seen how real it becomes. Watch Meta. Tech Check is back after this. Let's get a gut check on Apple. Stock's up nearly 10% over the last month, as you know. But Loop Ventures managing partner Gene Munster thinks there's still more upside ahead. Says things could go as high as 250 over the next few years. In an interview with CNBC's Street Signs Asia, you can read the full write-up at cnbc.com pro. Apple, of course, has gone from 130 to 175 in just two months. More Tech Check coming up after this. Another read on software demand and small-medium business demand coming after the bell today with Intuit reporting results. The street is expecting a strong quarter, projecting sales of more than $2 billion. Intuit has beaten estimates through the last four quarters. And we're going to break down those numbers with CEO Sasan Ghadarzi here on Tech Check tomorrow. D, Credit Karma going to be a big part of this yeah. story one way or the other. And uh, we'll see what the consumer has to do with it. Yep, it'll be a good read on small and medium-sized businesses as well. This is a name, guys, that has really rallied over the last three months, up some 20%. Um, so we'll see if that maybe prices it for perfection when it reports. Uh, yeah, especially as uh, complexity has uh, definitely entered the works workplace, especially for small and medium size. That's going to be key. If you want more tech, check on the go. In the meantime, you can follow and subscribe to our podcast. Listen anytime, anywhere, wherever you download podcasts. We're back in just a moment. 
One more thing before we go. That is Instacart, the journalette, with a report showing revenue grew by 39 percent year over year last quarter with total revenue hitting a record. And, guys, this is a positive sign that consumers, they are sticking with online grocery delivery despite rising prices. Now, this is also one of the few Silicon Valley names, big ones at least, headed for a public listing as IPO activity just plummets. Traditional IPOs raising a little more than $5 billion total this year, according to DealLogic data. Last year at this time, we had already crossed more than $100 billion at this point. What a difference a year makes. Um, we know that for sure. Guys, sometimes it takes one high-profile pro- company to come out of the gates and IPO to kind of open the doors for others. In the case of Instacart, uh, the market has been so down on gig economy companies. It will be interesting because we know that it has a big ad business, enterprise business. We don't exactly know the size of it, though. I think that's a question that many investors are going to be wondering. I want to see, does Instacart come to market with a mullet, with a crew cut, with a bald <laughs> How big is the haircut on valuation that Didn't they end they up taking? Didn't they take their... I mean, already. I mean, but but it's unclear exactly what the haircut is. Is this a fifteen yeah. billion dollar company? Is it twenty? Is it less than fifteen? Is it valued like an Uber or DoorDash? These are good questions. It will have public comps in a way that Uber and Lyft didn't when they came to market a few years ago. Uh, yeah, going from 100 to 5 uh, at this point of the year is, is pretty dramatic, especially given all the swirling cross-currents and e-commerce and delivery in general. Uh, I got to say, uh, Kate's interview with Brian Armstrong this hour, uh, very eye-opening. John, as you pointed out, uh, his comments about regulators and the industry's relationship with regulators. We're going to see what Chano says in response when he joins the judge in about 30 seconds. We are. And, you know, he's talking to one of these old-school news organizations that it was sounding few months ago, like he thought he didn't need. So um, we, we all go through changes. <laughs> I hope we talk to media. him again. Yeah. It'll be interesting, Carl, to see what he says about that subscription revenue, right? Because that kind of flies in the face of his short. Yeah. And of course, this afternoon, we'll get into it. As we said, urban uh, toll and advanced auto parts as we work our way through the week. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.